We turn with you now in the New Testament to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 39. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And when he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And he rose up from prayer, and he came to his disciples. He found them sleeping from sorrow. He said to them, "Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation." Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we encounter weak men who are not able to carry on in prayer. We are reminded of ourselves. But Lord, as we see this strong man, yes, having our flesh, and subject to all, indeed, of its frailties, yet, Lord, he persevered in the great agony and great work that was given to him. Lord, how we pray that we would continue with you this hour that, Lord, you would speak to us, that you would direct our hearts and our attentions to this word that you have for us on this appointed day, and that you'd bless it greatly to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning we arrive at last to Gethsemane, the place of Jesus' agony and his betrayal and arrest. Now the Lord has been on a journey to that place for some time. We said this was the great transition actually of this this gospel of Luke. In his ordinary ministry he finally comes to a place where his face is set steadfastly towards Jerusalem and nothing can turn him away from his purpose. So much so that at a particular village, the people did not receive him because his face was set to make this journey to Jerusalem and nothing would dissuade him from this. And he has come. In this last section, we, re- we recall the reason why he gave to his disciples a change of instruction from what he had given as he sent them out two by two. He said in verse 37, I say to you, that which was written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. These things concerning me have an end. Numbering with the transgressors. Numbered with the criminals. Meaning he was going to be arrested by the authorities. Among other things. And he could have simply turned away from all of this. But no, as I say, he's been set on this journey towards Jerusalem. And to his ordeal for some time. And then... In verse 39, where does he go? Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. Now, friends, you have to understand that Jesus was fully aware 
Now, Judas expected him to do that. Now, Judas expected him to do according to his custom. That is the essence of what he was paid to do. He knew the, the routine. He knew the customs of Jesus Christ and therefore could set him up. Could give that insider information to the authorities in order that he might be arrested in a place away from the people that they could do it on the sly. And that's exactly what was going to happen. Jesus knew it. And so there was no escape physically. He was walking directly into this storm, this maelstrom. What then? What then could he do? He he was not going to turn away from that. He was not going to turn tail and to run from this garden. He was going to come right to it. What then was he going to do? The answer is he's going to pray. The escape is not going to be found. Help is not going to be found by running away. Help is to be found in prayer. This now is a time of spiritual warfare in its most extreme form. You've heard me talk about spiritual warfare. We've said of the need to engage in spiritual warfare. This, this is it, friends. This is as, in this most extreme form. Jesus will later on go to, to, to explain why it is that they were able to do what they were able to do in verse 53. This is your hour and the power of darkness. The power of darkness. And the thing for Jesus to do in that hour, the thing for Jesus and his disciples to do in this time of the power of darkness is to pray. And that's what this sermon is about. It's entitled Prayer in Gethsemane. Now in it, we are going to be constantly referring to what Jesus is undergoing, his agony that is part of his suffering, that is leading, of course, to the great suffering to come as the Father lays upon him the sins of all the people. And we're going to find that those two things cannot be easily pulled apart But actually his agony in prayer is part and parcel of this work, this mission the Lord has given. But as for us, the great focus, the great thing that we must learn has to do with prayer. So prayer in Gethsemane, and there are these these four points. First, the disciples' prayer. They have a part. Secondly, Christ's prayer. Thirdly, the answer And fourthly, the agony. The disciples' prayer, Christ's prayer, the answer, and the agony. So first, the disciples' prayer. As I say, verse 39, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is in the imperative, in the Greek as it is, in the English and Jesus is giving them a command at this point. Now, frankly, you, you have to understand that he does not give such commands everywhere. Even when we come to the Lord's Prayer, it was not that he is commanding them. His disciples merely observe the power that he, he derives from prayer and his, how much of a habit it is in his life and how much he loves to pray. And they want to be like that, so they ask him, teach us to pray. And he explains. But here, no unsolicited, there's no curiosity here. The the Lord, in a moment of the battle, is commanding them as a captain and telling them, pray. Pray. That's his command. 
And more specifically, the content of that command to pray, it is a reiteration, a repetition of an aspect of the Lord's Prayer. You know which one I'm talking about? You know there are petitions in the Lord's Prayer. And in the Shorter Catechism, we learn each one of those petitions. In Luke 11.4, Forgive us our sins. We also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's the specific part of the Lord's Prayer that he is saying that they must focus on, that they must pray for, that you not enter into temptation. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, friends, let me say there is a degree of irony here because what is Jesus doing at this point? Because he did not take a detour before he got to Jerusalem. What is he doing? Because he's not breaking from his custom and going straight to that same place that he always goes. He's going directly into the place of temptation. Even as the Holy Spirit himself had led Jesus out into the desert to be tempted by the devil for 40 days, so he had walked directly into temptation. And he is not making that prayer for himself. Because he is in the place in the power of darkness. But he is praying for his disciples. As he prayed for Peter, I've interceded for you. And he's telling them now that you not fall into temptation. He has to be there in a place of temptation. He's saying that they be delivered from this. And Luke twenty two thirty one, as I mentioned, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Friends, what I want you to understand is that in the the hour of Jesus' greatest need, and this was it, top on his list of priorities was his own disciples, their well-being. As he was about to undergo the greatest agony that he would ever face, and that anyone in all of history would ever endure, I'll say this later on, that what Jesus Christ endured was, was greater than what anyone had ever endured before and what anyone would ever endure after. And I don't don't just mean all the martyrs, but even the condemned, even the damned in hell would never, will never, can never endure as much as Lord Jesus Christ in that concentrated amount of time as he bore the sins of his people. The first thing on his mind is the the well-being of his disciples. And to that end, he says, you, pray. That you not enter into temptation. Well, in the other Gospels, we get a little bit more information about the, the character and circumstances of this situation. For instance, in Matthew 26, 38, it says... My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Because that's the other aspect of it. Besides just telling them on your own, you go pray for yourselves because I'm concerned with you. There is also an element of mutuality that they are in this together. Watch with me is what he desires at this moment. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. 
Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them asleep and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Do you see that again? Watch with me. These disciples, yes, he was concerned with their, for their well-being, but they were a provision for him. That he was there with them. Watch and pray. Now, in the end, they don't manage it, okay? Let me make this clear. Jesus, they, they, they don't manage in the end to, to watch and pray with him for even that one hour. As soon as he says that, he goes just a little bit away to, to be alone with the Father, and they immediately fall asleep. He comes back, and they're asleep. Okay, so they don't actually manage to, to be with him, and that's, that's only right, you see. Because we have to see that Jesus stood alone. We have to see that actually no one was with him wrestling in prayer. No one stood with him in his trial. Rather, his, his main disciple just denies that he even knew him. And no one was with him on that cross. Because, friends, he did this all by himself. No one dr- had that cup. No one drank a bit of that cup of the wrath of God except himself. And we had to know that. But, friends, that's not what Jesus asked of them. All things, if it were possible, he would have preferred. Again, if it were possible, his stated preference is that he, they, they do stand with him. They do pray with him in his hour of temptation, in his hour of darkness. That's what he would wish in his hour of trial. Disciples were in it with him. That was the great danger, of course, to be identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. And there they were. And Jesus' word to them was that they should pray. For themselves, yes, but with and for him as well. Now they, as I say, they don't succeed in their prayer. They fall asleep. Secondly, let's consider Christ's prayer. Verse 41, and he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. Again, he doesn't want to go too far from them, just far enough to be, as it were, alone with the Father. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, friends, there is no way that we can possibly plumb the depths of this particular scripture now or ever. It it is not within anyone's capacity to do so. All we want is to to get a little bit, to come just a little bit closer to it. And to do so again, we look at the parallel text in Matthew, Matthew 26, 39. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will. But as you will. And actually then we get a slightly different statement in Mark. Mark 14, 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. I I guess it's just some mistake in the text, right? No, of course not. He was there laying bare his soul in his greatest time of agony. And he did not just say something once. He said slightly different things more than one time. And I believe that there is a progression here, actually. 
and progression. It's along these lines, if it's possible. But all things are possible with God. So if it's your will, that's the thing. That's his progression. He is, he, he, his, his theology, which is perfect, is in play as he prays to his father and friends. That's the way it needs to be with us. I'll, tr- I'll, I'll explain again. Right? Was it possible that God should not will this? Yes, it's possible. Was it possible that God should not will this and also will the salvation of his people? No, it wasn't possible. He says, all things are possible with with you, Father. It's true. It's true. In the absolute, all things are possible. The question is, what does he will? What does he want? What he desires is the salvation of his people. And that's what he desires too, because he only desires the will of God. He says, he came to do your will, O Lord. And he's the only one who did it perfectly. He's the only one who always wanted to do the will of the Father without exception. That's what he wants. Therefore, it's not a matter of what is possible theoretically, because it's theoretically possible that he could have walked away from there. What matters is the will of God. And that's the bottom line of his prayer. And friends, let me say again, we could speak of many other things here. But that is surely the bottom line of our prayers. Do you know what a a prayer that is consciously aware of of a difference between our will and God's will and willing to go our own way, desirous of enforcing our own will when it is contrary to God's will? Do you know what that is? It's called sin. God's not going to hear that kind of prayer. Sin. What we should desire is precisely what is in the Lord's Prayer. And you know what else? This is all that is happening here, friends. He's he's telling the disciples, pray that you enter not into temptation. That's one of the, the, the requests, one of the petitions made in the Lord's Prayer. And this one is another. That your will be done. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Nothing more, nothing less, friends. That's what he's praying. That's his prayer. And the question is, is that prayer answered? It's a good question, isn't it? Is that prayer answered? Let's go on now. Let's see the answer that we get on our third point, the answer. Verse 43, Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. We'll get to that, but let me just say, first of all, this is not the first time that God has done this particular thing. In 1 Kings 19.4, you know that the prophet, Elijah, weary, in despair, he went a day's journey into the wilderness, came and sat down on a broom tree, and what did he pray? He prayed that he might die. It's not a sinless prayer, I don't think. He said, it is enough now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. He lay and slept under a broom tree. Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. He looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights. As far as horror. 
A time of great trial, a time of great darkness, a time of great need, God provides for his prophet by sending an angel. And he has done that already for his son. And a great precursor to what he is enduring right now when he is tempted by the devil for 40, day, for 40 days in, 40, in, the, the de, in the desert to be tempted by the de- devil in the end of it. After the devil left him in Mark 4.11, angels came and ministered to him. Okay. This is God's provision. Jesus, I want you to understand that Jesus needed strengthening. That's what he needed at that moment. He was fully God, but he was also fully man. And we must never, ever imagine that in order to uphold one, we have to lose the other. He was fully God, yes, but fully man, meaning in our frailties. Look, if he didn't have any frailties, if he didn't have any, any tiredness, if he wasn't subject to our weaknesses, then he, didn't, he wasn't really fully man, was he? No, he needed strengthening. Man, he took on our nature, everything except for sin, in, his, in, a, in frailty. And he needed that strengthening. It's interesting to me, by the way, he has just given the command to Peter that when you have returned, strengthen your brother. He says, look, your brethren are going to be weak. They're going to need strengthening, and I want you to go do it. And the father has just sent an angel to strengthen his son. How about that? But we still haven't answered the question. Was the Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, was his prayer answered? Yes and no. Yes and no. Because the crux of what he asked was, take the cup away. Okay, there are many qualifications, and they are sinless and perfect. And the net effect of his prayer is that he is in no opposition. He is in no rebellion. But in the agony of his soul, he is feeling the weight. He is shrinking from that cup that is being handed to him. He sees it and he shrinks from it. And he says, take it away, if it's possible. And ultimately, if it's your will. Because it's not possible. And the answer is he's not answered. Okay? We have to see that. I, I, I hope you take a good look down at your Bible. Do you understand that there was one prayer that the Lord Jesus asked for that was not answered? And it was that the cup would be taken away from him. The cup was still there. He didn't take it away. All he did was send him an angel to strengthen him, to endure it. Give him just a little bit of comfort a little bit of strengthening in order that he would carry on to drink the cup in its entirety. That's the answer that's given. The appearance of the angel in one sense must surely have been a great comfort to the Lord Jesus, but in another sense, what does it mean? What does it mean, friends? He's going to have to drink the cup. Because if the Lord had answered what was the essence of the prayer, there's no need for any angel. Cup disappears. No need for an angel. No need for any comfort. He's out of there. And now the angel comes. 
Now, let me say, of course, in another sense, it is he does have his prayer because he's praying for the will of God to be done. And the will of God is being done. You understand that? It's both of those things in different senses. And he gets what he needs at that moment. Which is not that the cup be taken away from him. Rather, he be strengthened to drink it. And that brings us fourthly and finally to the agony in verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And to restate the obvious, Christ was in agony. What does that word mean? We don't use that word often, and when we do, we misuse it. But agony is defined as, in literal terms, as a public game. This is the kind of game that they had. Where these combatants engage in a contest, contend for a prize. And of any heroic effort to strive earnestly to make every effort. And of fighting with weapons, it is to fight, to struggle, to strive earnestly. And that's what this agony is about. And this agony is emphasized and ascribed to us not only by the, the word itself, but by the effect on him. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Was it actual blood or was it just great drops of sweat that looked like blood because of their... their I'm not sure. It doesn't matter. The point is this wasn't normal. The point is this is something that does not happen every day and it was indicative of an incredible struggle within the heart and mind and body and soul of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's in agony. And again, why? Why is he in agony? Why? Why is he more in agony now than what he was five minutes ago? The answer is he's received his answer. There's no alternative to the cup. The only relief was the angel visitation. And now he's in more agony. And again, the answer is why? Why? Plenty of, let me say this, plenty of Christian martyrs have gone to their death with much less trouble than this, more serene. You, you read about them all the time. They're going to be burned alive. And they say, good, sometimes. How, how is this? Was Jesus weaker than these other martyrs? Certainly not. The difference is that what he faced was not limited to the mere torture and death of his body, which can be endured, but rather in his soul he would face the wrath of Almighty God. These martyrs merely faced the wrath of man, and they endured. Jesus Christ was to face the unendurable, that which no man had ever tasted in anything like its full strength, the wrath of God. Again, that's why he was not answered. His prayer was not answered because there was no other way. There is no other will of God. You see, he says, not my will, but yours be done. There is no other will of God, but the will to put his son to death for the sins of the people. The, the will of God that was expressed in Isaiah 53.10. Yet it pleased the, the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin. You see that? What's the will of God for Jesus in this case? It, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. To put him to grief. And what is he talking about? He's talking about his soul. When you make his soul an offering for sin. It's not just his body. That's just the outward part of it. Bad enough. 
but it's his soul that would endure the wrath of Almighty God. What is the wrath of God? You know, people rail against this idea today. But friends, you need to know what awaits you. If you're here apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're not a believer, you know what awaits you? The wrath of God. And if you say, whatever, I'm sure we'll have a party there. The strongest man by far who ever lived shrank from that cup. You saw him sweating as he was, as it were, great drops of blood. And friend, if you're in your right mind, you ought to be doing the same. Because the wrath of God is something that no one can endure. And in order for us, for anyone to be saved, the spotless Lamb of God had to endure that on our behalf. And that's what he proposed to do. That is what, in fact, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit proposed to do from all eternity. This was their great plan. The covenant of redemption. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. And he shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand because he is doing that for his seed, his people, that they might be saved. Now when he gets this answer and when he is in agony and the agony continues... And he sees in all of its detail the cup that is coming. And there's no way of knowing how bad. Again, this, let me say to the unsaved, let me say to those who are in Christians, again, you have no idea how bad it is. And as it comes closer, it comes in, in greater detail and relief. And sometimes it happens to those who are dying. And they contemplate the horror that awaits them in judgment because they die with sin on them. They have not been reconciled to God through Christ and all of a sudden it comes to them, this unimaginable horror. How does he deal with it? The answer is he prayed more earnestly. You see that? He prayed more earnestly. It's the solution for him. Prayer. Prayer. It's all about prayer. Well, as I say, beloved, we're, we have not and we shall not. We never really get to the bottom of all these things, but we see enough for us today. Give us this day our daily bread. Let's not forget that. The daily need. And what we see in all this is prayer. Prayer. And my first application is to say that this is good news. It's good news because the crux of Christ prayer, which was to take the cup away, it was not answered. That is good news for us, okay? Because somehow somebody had to pay that price. And it wasn't going to be you or I, because it wasn't, that's not going to do anybody any good. We're sinners. We deserve it. We can't die on behalf of anyone else. Had to be the spotless Lamb of God. And friends, in order for our prayers to be answered, a prayer for salvation, a prayer for deliverance, someone else's prayer had, had to be refused. We have to say it's very good news when we read about the bad news for the Lord Jesus Christ. you understand that? In a fallen world, in a place of sin, for a sinner, before a holy God, there is no good news apart from bad news. In order for us to be saved, someone else had to be condemned. And that someone else was the Lord Jesus. In order for our prayers of salvation to be heard, Lord, don't pour out your wrath upon me. His prayer, Lord, don't pour out your wrath upon me, had to be refused. 
You see? It's good news for us. It's good news. And let me say that it is good news that we see this example that God is able to help us even when it is his will that we endure trial. Because if you're in Christ, it will never be his will that you endure his wrath. Never, ever, ever. But we also know it will be his, his will that you suffer trials and tribulation and persecution. We know that. And we should remember that God is able to help us even when it is his will that we endure these trials. Isn't it a picture of the kindness of the Heavenly Father? The, the, the sovereign and triune God from all eternity had determined that this was going to happen, that it had to happen. The Lord Jesus Christ was not surprised that this was going to happen. He knew it. And isn't it a picture rather of his kindness that if there was any little token, if there was any little thing that could be given, even any assistance at that moment to be rendered, and we cannot tell how much assistance was being rendered by the Holy Spirit. We know that throughout his ministry, he was being upheld by the Holy Spirit. The, the Heavenly Father would give that assistance, that comfort. Whatever it takes. And that's the word I want you to, to have in your mind when we consider the good news that's here. It's, it's whatever it takes. That's what, the, that's what God is willing to do for us. In our moment of trial, in our, in our extremity of need, He is willing to do whatever it takes to help us. This is the gospel, that He will never leave nor forsake us. He will save His people. He is committed to saving His people. He says, I'm your God. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to save you. Meaning, I will sin, I will put my son to grief in order to make that happen. I will put him to agony. I will make him sweat these, these great drops of blood. Even if it means me seeing him dying on the cross, I will make it happen in order that I might fulfill all my promises to you. No matter what. Friends, that's good news. That is good news. And all we have to do is receive that in faith. All we have to do is believe. When, G when the Lord says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. When he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's, that's it. He will fulfill. If you embrace and receive those promises upon you, then, then he, he commits himself to making sure that they come true. No matter what. Secondly, I only have three applications this time. Secondly, form good habits. Form good habits. Okay, remember again, as he was accustomed. Do you remember that? Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples followed him. In some way, this was, and in a tactical sense, Maybe not the best thing if he was trying to avoid capture. This wasn't the best thing. But he wasn't trying to avoid capture. But rather, the reason why he was doing that, the reason why he was getting away a little bit from the city, is so that he could pray. And this was his custom. We know that throughout the Gospels, we find that this was his custom to pray. And this is a custom that served him well in the darkest hour. The thing that came naturally to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we can speak of naturally because why? He shared our human nature. Sinless, but yes, he, he, 
He shared it. And what came naturally to the Lord Jesus in this moment is to pray. Friends, what kind of habits are you forming for these the days ahead? Because at the crucial moment of Christ's life, he did not do something new or unprecedented. Do you understand that? I guess we sometimes think that when something new and unprecedented comes, we'll do something new and unprecedented in response to it. That, that never happens. Okay? We revert to form. The question is, what is the form that we can revert to at the time? The question is, what sort of habits are you forming day by day? What sort of things will you have to fall back on when the great trial comes? I hope it's prayer. I hope it's prayer. Let me just take another example of this forming good habits. I would say even in terms of our worship one of the saddest things is that the evangelical church today, that our worship, that the, not ours, but generally speaking, the evangelical church's worship is not suitable for dark moments. They've got nothing to say on a funeral. What is it? Happy couple. They, they don't know what to do. There's a, there's a coffin there with a dead body of someone's dearest, and they have to do this thing because they have no other worship material for the dark moments. And they have no other habit to be formed. I was at an installation last night of such a church. And it was supposed to be a solemn moment. There's the bishop and the archdeacon and so forth. They're making their procession. I've got the, the guitars and the drums and the keyboards. And it was bizarre. It was out of keeping with the moment. But they knew, they knew no different because this was their habit, this was their custom. It wasn't even suitable for moments, momentous moments, let alone dark moments. Friends, what are the habits that we have? Do you have hymns? Do you have psalms in your heart and in your mind that are ready to go for the dark times? What are we going to sing at your funeral? Because it's coming for all of us. What are we going to sing on that dark day? Do we have habits that can sustain the worst of times? Form good habits. Thirdly and finally, I want us to see that the heart of the matter is wanting to do God's will. You know, people struggle with this very often. Sometimes they struggle about the minutiae, you know, oh, is it God's will for me to do this or do that? And very, very similar things. Friends, let me just say that the crucial thing is simply that you really want God's will to be done in your life. Sometimes people say it, but I'm not sure if they mean it. But if you mean it, then you're there, okay? You, you have already won the battle. Don't worry about the minutia. If you are really in a place in your life where your only desire is to do exactly what God wants you to do, you are there. Praise God for it. And God will always have a way to direct His people to his will. Most importantly in his word. What is his will for us? Well, Romans 12, 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, just as it was the, the will of, of God for the Son. What was his will? Son, I want you to be a sacrifice. You want my will to be done? I'll tell you what my will is. I want you to lay down your life right now for, for the people and die. That's what I want you to do. 
Brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable God, which is your reasonable service. By the way, it goes on to say this, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove, that you may discover, that you may discern what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You won't be able to know the will of God for your life if you're worldly, if your mind has been conformed to the world. But if it's been transformed by the renewing of your mind to the mind of Christ, then you will be able to know and to do the will that he has for you. Friends, there is nothing more important for us than that we should submit entirely to the will of God And we, in sincerity, pray that his will be done in our lives, on earth, as it is in heaven. Let us pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, what can we say to these things? You, who were pleased to put your only begotten Son the perfect God-man who knew no sin, put him to grief for us, that you should refuse to take away the cup. And there in his agony, yes, Lord, to sustain him and uphold him and to comfort him, but nonetheless to send him in that garden, to send him to that courthouse, and to send him to that cross, and to send him to that grave. That you should do these things for the likes of our unworthy selves, it is beyond our imagination. But Lord, we know this, you who did not spare your only son, how much more, Lord, are you going to do all other things? How much more are you going to answer our prayers? How much more are you going to be kind and good to us? and to help us in our moment of trial and temptation. Lord God, how we pray that we would come with the same heart of the Lord Jesus, wanting only your will to be done. How we pray, Lord, that if Christ had to die, that the very least, then that we should cling to him in faith, that we should receive that which he did in order that we might be saved. We should follow his example of laying down our lives, seeking to do your will at every place and every turn, knowing that you will provide for us. Knowing, Lord, that all these things are for the glory of God and for the good and the blessing of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.